Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Achtung, Achtung. Welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray, and of course with James Holland. Um, and today we are speaking to a very special guest, someone um, who, to actually uh, get get a get an idea of what he looks like, is, a, is, is, a, is an exciting prospect in itself. Who are we talking to today, James? Well, he's a young chap, he's a young fella. Uh, um... Yes, he's younger than I thought he would be. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we are talking to Jonathan, Jonathan Ware, who is um, uh, a very, very uh, brilliant military historian. Um, he's been a presence to me on Twitter for quite a long time, and we shared all sorts of things, haven't we? Back and forth, you, me, and Al, um, and research mm. and all sorts. I mean, your magnum opus, um, Jonathan, is Jocks, Dragons, and Saucepans through Normandy with the 53rd Welsh Division. But I think it's fair to say that you probably know more about the granular detail of the Normandy campaign than any person I've yet met. Um, so I'm really, really looking forward to this because I'm I'm literally just about finished with my Normandy section of um, my Sherwood Rangers book. Uh, um, but um, I'm expecting I'm going to pick up all sorts of other tidbits today. Yeah, um, it's it, it, whatever you do, don't start a big project because you get taken down all the all the rabbit holes. Uh, <laughs> it's a lesson in madness trying to understand because the Normandy campaign is so bloody huge. I used to play a game when I was an undergrad where I would give copies of um, Max Hastings' Overlord book and a few others to mates of mine, and uh, I'd say to them, work out how the Allies win, and no one could do it. <laughs> and, <laughs> And you're like, oh come on, this, this can't be this hard. This this is this is a big book by a major British historian. So then I added a few more in, um, and they. It was only when you added Robin Neelands in, and reading Neelands is like taking a shot of absinthe through the eye. It's <laughs> it's it's just an absolute mentalist book. It's fantastic. Um, but yeah, so that that's really how I got into it because. I couldn't work out the answer. Well, you so know, I know, well, really. you know, I, I, um, uh, when I made Road to Berlin in 2004, a long time ago, which is full of a lot of the sort of stuff that you have since uh, overturned, because because that's sort of where where things were in 2004, and other and other people, obviously. Um, is uh, we interviewed we interviewed a guy at the top of the Borgibu Ridge, and he said certainly, uh, and you know, we didn't use it in the program, but he sounds off. He goes, certain historians, and I can naming no names, Max Hastings, um, uh. uh have failed to explain how we got to the top of this bloody hill and uh, <laughs> and that was his attitude as you know for, and i know we can't always we can't always necessarily believe the word of the people who are actually there because they you know they don't know the, the bigger picture they they only know their if they're a tanker they only know possibly through the the, the their viewing uh, uh slit in their vehicle or through their periscope or whatever but um this is the interesting thing about normandy isn't it is is in the end if you do how on earth do the Allies win if this is the story that's being told? Yeah, you get the maths of derbs. So it's like one plus two equals seven is roughly how yep. I always thought it comes out when you read most stuff. Um, and and the truth is, it's a bit like I should have actually bought like a Jenga tower because I was watching the big short the other day. But 
a lot of these books were written on the assumption that all the other layers of study had been done, when actually a lot of them weren't done, or they were warped post-war to argue political points, hence why um, Hans von Luck uh, really has disproportionate pro- um, a weight applied to him. And if you check like uh, John Gorman's stuff, he writes how on post-war tours that people used to sort of, they would, they'd, they'd swap notes to the extent where you get this creation of narrative, which also fits... Um, uh, for the, what the British Army's trying to teach officers on tours, who then end up writing the books, or the historians who go on the tours, then and you get this circular sort of feedback loop reverberating through well, veteran accounts that shift, and it's just. I mean, I can tell you what, Johnson. It is. It is very the the the, the kind of, sort of traditional view of the sort of Germans on the pedestal is very very deep rooted within the high echelons of the British Army, um, from from exactly from that from the Sandhurst trips, and you know, I mean. When you're at Sandhurst, you go. One of the things you do as part of your Sandhurst training is to go on a battlefield tour of um, uh, of Normandy, and it's got a special name. I can't remember what it is, but 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 anyway, they do this, and, and this is where that kind of sort of in, you know, uh, um, sort of feeding in of these ideas begins, uh, and it just gets sustained all the way through. And I mean, I, mean, I remember talking to um, the then head of the British Army over dinner about, uh, and I was saying, well, actually, you know, I don't think the Germans were quite all they were cracked up to be and he he literally wasn't having any of it I mean you know he may have changed his mind now but but I mean it's exciting though I think because you know uh, I remember Gary Sheffield writing about 10 years ago saying you know there's been a quiet revolution in how we think about the second world war in some article he was writing um and you know that there has been I think and I think things are changing and I think that old view the Carlo Deste kind of sort of declinist view of of the allies in the second world war i I really think that's been kicked into touch i i I really i don't think that's quite as all pervasive as it as it was sort of 15 20 years ago but jonathan one of the things i've seen you argue is that there's a there's a sort of just there's a fundamental misunderstanding of what allied the allied strategy in normandy actually is and that there is, a, that, that after all, there is a strategy. And for all the all sort of chafe politicking where people are saying you're going too slowly, it's, you know, and, and the, the story that Montgomery's being being lent on for being for going too slowly and all that sort of thing. But the, one of the things that's missing from the telling the story is the Germans never fully appreciate what the Allied strategy in Normandy actually is. They never get their heads around it, which feeds them into defeat. And that that, I think, is a thing... Again, we, we, all the accounts are about how brilliantly the Germans fight rather than about the fact they never really figure out what's going on. And if these, uh, uh, you know, these are essentially allied accounts of an allied victory that don't understand the allied strategy. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what hope is there for getting to the bottom of things? <laughs> uh, it, yeah, I mean, one of the most weird, actually, to be honest, one of the things which drove my work was I had I couldn't work out Operation Goodwood, and it's a really simple thing. So, Goodwood and Cobra, uh, two major battles the Allies fight. First comes Goodwood, then comes Cobra. Goodwood punches to the uh, you know around Caen, and then Cobra comes around Saint Lo. So, the conventional narrative is that that Goodwood holds the German armored divisions in place. Uh, to allow the Americans to break out. And at the same time, this is good word, this is a huge tank battle to avoid causing infantry casualties. Mm. Um, the problem is that is complete bollocks in part because <laughs> when you look at... And this is something which I, I, I really just... I couldn't get over how much crap had been written on. So when you dig into it, we know for a fact 
if you go through, because a lot of people say that Dempsey's documents don't exist. I went to Kew and I spent weeks there and I started looking at who was calling who on in the run up to Goodwood and on the day of Goodwood. What are the phone calls? Who's making the calls from core to army so we can follow it all down? What are the patrols doing? All this stuff. Now, I was writing a book about the Welsh division when doing this. And the reason was, was two days before Goodwood starts, actually it's late on 15th July, 15th Scottish division launches a massive operation at, at Hill 112, Hill 113, mostly towards Hill 113. And it gets a footnote in Daglish's Goodwood book, and I raised it with him before he died. And he said to me, this is a really interesting point you're making. Um, and it gets a, point, a footnote in, it gets sort of a line in Buckley, because there's one officer refers to, I think it's in the Argyll and Sutherland Highlanders, as a pointless muddle. If Goodwood... Actually, annoyingly, I don't have the stats to hand, but if you work out the casualties sustained in the run-up to Goodwood, and there are five major operations in this time, and anyone listening to this probably doesn't know this, uh, you've got, uh, you've got what's it, a Green Line, Pomegranate, Cor- Cormoran, uh, Atlantic, Goodwood. Uh, I think there may be one or two tiny little ones else, but you've got basically every British corps. So you've got the whole of Second Army slamming in to the Germans uh, for about uh, nearly two, three days before Goodwood. And then you go, oh, by the way, it's just a diversion attack for... uh, Yeah, Jonathan, I've just been writing about Maori 2. Maori 2 is on Hotto, which is a a, a sticky two-day battle from the 12th to the 14th of July. So, again, just before Goodwood. And that is also about just this relentless across the board from from Con all the way, uh, quite a long way west, almost to Comont, but not quite to Comont, they're just pushing south the, uh, along the whole way. Uh, and, you know, and, and it's just it's yeah. just chewing up the Germans. So I was trying to work out then with Goodwood, looking at that, because if we look, because the, there's the whole strategy shift, because a Jupiter doesn't go the way we expect it to. The uh, the simplest way to sum up uh, the battle is, for Hill, Hill 112 is, just for those who don't know. Yeah, that's the, that's the uh, that's sort of the second one after Epsom, which is yeah. sort of the first-ish 112. This is where the DCLI will get chewed up and stuff uh, with 43rd. When uh, Jupiter goes down, uh, after that, there's a change in strategy because the Brits realise that Hill 112 won't fall easily. Now, Dempsey, when he looked at Hill 112, that, that ground, he thought the key feature was not Hill 112. He completely disagreed with everyone else. And Dempsey was one of these officers who could just visualise ground off yeah. off on map. He's a very, very competent commander. And a lot of the Allied command rows we get stuck into is because people don't understand that Dempsey even existed. He barely makes the cut. Yeah, and there's been uh, Peter Rostron's books on Dempsey's all right, but because a lot of his papers were burnt post-war by his secretary, so you have to reframe how you think about it. The Germans focused on Hill One One Two, and that's where we get this quote that you know Hill One One Two's the um, oh it's like the cornerstone of the campaign, or everything relies on Hill One One Two, or something along those lines. Um, I'm going to get shot by someone who knows who knows the exact quote uh, that I've forgotten it at that moment. <laughs> um, but the Germans overly fixate on Hill 112, so you get Willie Beatrick, you get corps commanders going up and walking down 10th and 9th SS Panzer's lines, inspecting the whole area. When Rommel goes to Normandy and gets shot up, we often forget he's not going to check on the Goodwood area battle space so much. He's going because they've had such worrying uh, worrying news from the uh, areas where Operation Green Lines be kicking them in the teeth. So it's the areas around Hill 112, Hill 113. That's that's their real terror area. And if you consider Goodwood a breakout attempt, it can't be because there's there's none of sort of the underpinning 
planning going on there at all for me. It's not enough of it. But if you consider Goodwood as a tidy part of a major army level offensive, which is designed to doubly envelop Panzer Group West, and when you look at the final objectives for Green Line, Pomegranate, all that sort of stuff, you see that the Second Army are trying to fight a far more tidy battle to push here and then push there and lock in around Panzer Group West. So it, it's a basically a, a failed double envelopment. And that's why, when they're talking about Falaise and stuff, yeah, those are the ultimate objectives, but that's to encourage and exhort when they're really going for this double envelopment. And I think it's bloody clear from the planning documents. There's even, there, are, there are planning documents called Notes on Operations, which broadly outline it, and you're like... Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's how did we miss this well, for it's like also, 30 years? It, it, <laughs> but it's, it's very... I mean, I think, I think where it's all come, come from is that, you, you know, the Goodwood bit of it is O'Connor overseen by Dempsey and Dempsey's command style as, as I understand it is that he always gives an object uh, an objective which is the absolute top end of what can be achieved because his concern always is is that if you do achieve a, a lesser objective then you don't have a plan for what then follows through when you do have an opportunity to, to exploit which is why, for example, he has Con on day one of uh, on D-Day. You know, it, it's the absolute outer reaches of what can be expected. But you might as well have it as an objective, because if you can get it, then great. You know, and as, as Alan and I have discussed many times before, you know, he does achieve that in, in Sicily with, when he's commander of 13 Corps. You know, Syracuse is 10 miles from the invasion beaches. Um, and, and it's the same with Goodwood. You know, they might be able to exploit down to Falaise. They might be able to push on beyond the Bougabo reach and uh, ridge and uh, and push on, but it's unlikely. What's very interesting, though, is that Montgomery, when he's talking about Goodwood specifically, back to Eisenhower and the others and all the rest of it, and the, and the kind of you know his superiors, he doesn't dis. They get it. Tedder and Eisenhower get it into their heads that this is going to be the big breakthrough, and because Montgomery wants the support of um, bomber command for that operation a really big heavy and indeed the, the eighth air force as well really big strategic air forces he then doesn't disabuse them of that fact and it's absolutely clear that he recognizes exactly what the limitations of goodwood are and his predictions for goodwood funny enough are exactly what they achieve you know he says i think we'll get on to bugabos ridge we'll give them a bloody nose and you know we'll further chew them up that's the limit of what we can expect but he doesn't convey that to tedder and Isaiah, he doesn't lie to them. He just knows that they've got greater expectations than is realistic. But he knows that if he reduces it, he's not going to get his air support. So he lets them go on with it, knowing that chances are he'll be able to take the flak, which is absolutely the case. But I, I'm, I'm, I'm very convinced by your thesis about this as being a much larger kind of army, well, two army level, really, because the Canadians are involved as well, aren't they? I mean, it's, it's, it's a general, well, the, you know, the, yeah, the, the, the eastern half yeah. of, of the front. It's a general grinding down operation, isn't it? This, they're, they're going for this envelopment, but, but it doesn't happen. But the other side of it is actually the key thing I forgot was when you look at all the planning documents, uh, there's some really cool stuff which never makes it to Normandy, like helicopters. Uh, we were meant to have helicopters in Normandy, just throw that out there. The Americans wow, never wow. delivered them and there's all this, yeah. There's this cool <laughs> stuff from Ministry of Supply trying to chase them up. Uh, I worked it out to be in one of two helicopter models, but, um, you know, uh, it's, it's quite interesting. But the Americans yeah. were 
we're not downplaying the difficulties with Cobra. So um, one thing that I try to do a big thing in my book is not to shit on the the battle to get the line, the start line for Cobra, because it's it's absolutely hellish. Um, there's some of the lines in various administrative studies done at the time showed that the Americans went to unload maximum daily output of, what was it, uh, petrol, pole, petrol oil and lubricants, whereas the Brits prioritised uh, medium and field gun ammunition. So what they were trying to do is predict what would happen down the line. Uh, and yeah. after the loss of Marlbury A, the Americans have to really sort of juggle this a bit. And what that means is a lot of American operations have ammunition problems, which you're not seeing in 21st Army Group to the same right. extent. There are shortages of like 4.2 and stuff. Um, but the Americans, as they're trying to get sent lower, fighting this very manpower-intensive engagement. Um, but when you check the meetings between the phone calls between uh, Bradley, uh, Dempsey and Monty, you see that the Americans are constantly saying, oh, you know, Cobra's a day or two away, all through a lot of July. So when people are saying they're still planning Cobra, that's true. But if you actually look at what they're saying to their British counterparts and superior officer, it, it, it's a far messier picture of the Americans overselling uh, their ability to take ground and get ready for uh, for uh, Cobra and the breakout attempt they're going to launch. I mean, they they can't launch Cobra until they've got San Lo, can they? And and San Lo is, is you know getting off that that high ground to the north east just takes a heck of a lot longer. And, and I mean, I'm sure you've been there, but I mean, you know, when you do go up to that. Um, is it Hill 193 or something like that? I can't remember. Anyway, you know, when you do go up there, you you totally get why this was so sticky. I mean, this is, this is super small fields with extra thick hedges and, and extra sunken lanes. Uh, and and the Germans have got the high ground. And you can just see how this is this has all gone wrong. And, you know, people forget that a lot of these divisions that were in operation there were, were new to it. You know, this this is this is so new. And, you know, we were talking about this with John Buckley the other day, this this whole notion that, that you know, tactical doctrine, because it, it, it's just been worked out as they go along. You know, some of it, of course, has been prepped beforehand. Some of it has been trained beforehand, but not all of it, because the conditions are, are unique. They're so different from Sicily or southern Italy or from northern Africa or Tunisia or wherever. So, you know, it's not really surprising that it, it, it takes a little bit of time once the Germans decide to kind of dig in. I mean, it, it, it doesn't take a huge amount of mortars and machine guns and a desultory kind of long distance shelling to stop quite a lot of men advancing if they're advancing in this very, very close countryside. And also the number of troops who lead the advance is absolutely tiny. No, 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 it, it, it's, it's pretty much correct. Um, and the battle is, what's it, I think... Uh, Terry Cott makes a point that when you will look at like totalize, uh, I believe it is, it's led by about four hundred, uh, about one hundred and fifty men are leading the actual, you know, yes. uh, spearhead <laughs> of the advance, always, and you're like, oh, you know, fuck me, always amazing. Um, but yeah, uh, the one thing I thought interesting with fifty third div was when they arrived in theatre, they sent a load of officers out because they arrive in about the... Um, uh, I'm going to get the dates wrong myself now. I think it's the 25th to about the 28th is sort of the... No, it's before that. It's like the 22nd to the 28th or so. They're filtering into Normandy because they've got held up by the Great Storm. But when they arrive, they send officers to units who are in the line to find out what's going on and swap notes. And before they've gone to Normandy, they've already been getting briefings on theatre events. They've had some officers arrive and join... Uh, NCOs join the units from Italy. They're getting fresh updates but the first thing they actually did was run chutes tactical exercises without chutes and start running exercises in theater going through the bocage and i was surprised it was something within uh, it's like within 24 hours of getting these reports from uh 50 uh, i think it's northumberland 50th northumberland they're already 
exploring uh, new tactical ways from other formations and playing with their own ways because they've all been told to not suffer any casualties that's the other problem they've got every British formation has been told do not suffer unnecessary casualties they've been briefed about it and then throughout the campaign Bill Adams pops over and goes please don't suffer more casualties we've got serious problems sustaining uh, you know sustaining multiple battlefronts across a world war it's uh, it, it, that underpins a lot of the British operations um, and that's why, for me, again, with Goodwood, the casualties, I think, when you sketch in all the other corporations in the run-up to it and Goodwood. So Goodwood's about 3,500 cavs uh, all, in, all in if we bundle it together. Oh, this is, again, off the top of my head, so I could be wrong. Uh, but when you factor all the others in, it's closer to between 7,000 and 9,000 casualties. So the scale of ops we're talking about are far larger uh, and they don't get any airtime, um, and they usually are footnotes in history. And I think it really yeah. warps our misunderstanding of the uh, American stuff as well. Well, this, well, this brings me back exactly to what I was going to ask you next. Because, and we've we've we, we've had a conversation about uh, we had a conversation with this a while ago on Twitter. And your answer to why is why is Goodwood this headline battle? I think was because tanks are cool. I think that's what you said. <laughs> um, and and this is this is after all. Um, uh, Part of part of the sort of hardware um, top Trump's interpretation of the of the Normandy battle, of course, is is the other red herring available, isn't it? Oh, Panthers are Panthers are better than Shermans, uh, you know. Um, tigers are better than everything else. Blah blah blah. And of course, most people are now pretty well acquainted with the fact there aren't very many tigers um, around, actually, relatively speaking, and certainly not in the American um, at the American end of the lodgment. But but this sort of hardware fixation also means that people don't know about actually the, the full um, integration of allied anti-tank provision. They just look at the tanks and they don't think, for instance, about the anti-tank provision, which is after all the Royal Artillery. So if you go looking at tank formations, you're not going to see it because it's the, because it's the, the Royal Artillery providing this this cover with what are well, they're, they're self-propelled guns. I'll get into an argument on Twitter about this if I'm not careful. You know, the, the, the M10s uh, and so on. And, you know, and this focus on Firefly, which, of course, is sort of inevitable because it's it's in a tank formation. But actually, there's much more going on in Allied armoured um, provision and anti-armoured provision than, than I think people have have given credit for. And because Goodwood's a tank battle and not an, uh, and seen as a tank battle rather than an integrated arms battle, it's sort of that thing of people, you know, pointing at the moon and looking at the finger. It's like, is the Goodwood, uh, it, it, the way Goodwood's ended up, the sort of headline battle. Do you think that's right? Is it because tanks are cool? <laughs> yeah, tanks are cool. Actually, if you can't see. I've got, I've got a plush tank, a plush Sherman yeah, back nice. there. Yeah, no, I've got, actually, this is, this is, you can yeah, tell how they did the, uh, this. Yeah, tank, tanks are really cool. Um, and they're also, they're great things to model. It's like uh, wargaming. Painting yeah. armies of infantry is really fucking boring. Yeah, um, I know. I'm painting thousands of Warhammer 40k metal models from the 90s at the moment, but it, you know it's, it, it is boring. Yeah. Uh, no, it's easy to get like a cool, authentic view with tanks. Uh, like uh, when you look at Fury and stuff, they get that great aesthetic on the vehicles. Uh, I actually think Fury looks great. I think 
most of the film is complete bollocks. Um, but you, they, you can get this real great sort of uh, aesthetic going. At reenacting shows, the only people, things people look at are armoured vehicles, really. They often walk past the infantry display. Some people here will disagree with this, I know. I used to do it as a hobby, but people do just walk past a lot of the infantry displays or give them sort of a token uh, a bit of attention. Because the, the sight of a 35-tonne behemoth with a big gun and all of the design stuff. What The American bloke who collected tanks when they, uh, I forget his name now, when they disposed of his collection, uh, the big tank auction a few years ago, uh, someone said to him, why do you like tanks? Why didn't you collect tractors? And he said, if they're just they're machines designed to kill, to protect, to go cross country. They have to do so much stuff. They're fantastic. Um, so yeah, I, I do love my tanks. I, I mean, I love Churchill. Uh, it's a fantastic vehicle. Uh, I won't have anything bad said about it. Anyone who says anything bad is wrong. The early models tore themselves to pieces, but yeah. I've got a, I've got a theory about about, about it as well, uh, and I think re- one of the reasons why anti tank, um, you know, the um, tank destroyers, as they're called in Americans, and, and um, anti tank batteries and so on in in the British Army don't come to the fore is because exactly that, you know, it's the two three six anti-tank battery which is full of m10s which are really really cool but who knows that when you look at it you just think you you, in your mind's eye you're just thinking okay a bunch of six pounders you know you know uh um gun tractors you know some quads and stuff that's what you're thinking in your mind's eye you're not thinking of achilles and you know as they were later called and wolverines and all the rest of it you're just not thinking of that uh and you know if you think about tank units You've got the 13th, 18th Hussars, you know, you've got the Staffordshire Yeomanry, you've got the 4th, 7th uh, um, Dragoon Guards, you know, they've got proper names, you know, that, you know, you know that what they are just by their cool names and their cool cat badges, but but the 236th um, anti-tank battery, whoever knows that that's full of Wolverines, I mean, they just don't. And so they just I get, think some of it comes it down just to maths. Swept aside. But some of it's the maths. So this is this is really this is either really interesting or really dull. Um, so no, come on, no, well, we're going to be interested. Try me. Yeah. <laughs> so the coolest stuff in World War Two, if you look at the sheer amount of, um, I'm not going to shit talk anyone in particular, but there's so much stuff written about the Royal Air Force and planes, and that's because planes are cool it's nights of the air stuff if someone dies it's like got heroic overtones and all this stuff and yeah i'm, I'm, I'm sort of sexing this up but that's sort of a lot of popular perception so it's fine to talk about a air combat naval combat big ships big guns you either have a good war or a bad war in terms of that you know if it goes under it goes yeah. under i should just point out folks that jonathan is wearing a vulcan t-shirt at the moment I just like this t-shirt. I don't really care much for the Vulcan. Uh, everywhere I go, people are like, oh, you love the Vulcan? I'm like, no, no, I, I'm pretty ambivalent. It's a great plane. It was big. I just like the t-shirt. It's got a nice nice design aesthetic. Um, but yeah, I know everyone assumes I'm a Vulcan. No, I'm really not. Um, uh, but yeah, the closer you get to the sharp end, the number of accounts plummet. So we're, with special forces, there's quite a lot of stuff written about them so you've got some fantastic work on sixth airborne first airborne all that sort of stuff yeah. commandos quite a lot but line infantry and anti-tank you, you the number of accounts is atrocious so of 800 men you're sometimes lucky to have four accounts so an infantry battalion of 800 men you may get four accounts right. and then you've got to go so why do we not talk about it because i've always thought it's a bit weird that uh, normally we don't often look at what the soldiers at the sharp end were doing and it's because what they were doing was distressing disturbing violent and many of them did not talk about it post-war uh, many veterans i've met would not talk about their service 
in a military sense at all. I've even I've seen some journalists interview them and say to them, oh, what's it? The worst one I ever saw, the one I, I was disgusted by, was a journalist say to a veteran, they called it Murder Beach, didn't they? And the veteran did not want to talk about Omaha. And the veteran, the journalist kept saying, I think it was from Channel 4, it was years ago, but he kept saying Murder Beach. And I thought, this is... You have no idea what you're doing here. Um, And a lot, it's one of the things about the Falaise Gap, for example. Um, Lots of soldiers said you can't describe it. So when I wrote my book, I thought, well, I'm looking at 18,000 men in total. Let's see what they said about their experiences. And you can sort of reconstruct what it probably was like uh, just from their words. Um, But you're dealing with very, very small amounts of source material. There tends to be a lot more on the RA. But then the self-repelled anti-tank regiments and stuff, they often were in... uh, range of a lot of the enemy guns and they were prioritized by uh german gun crews and tank crews and stuff and infantry to eliminate to allow the armor to progress and such so the number of accounts for them tends to be quite poor so the more intense action your formation sees you often won't have the accounts you really want or you'll get the snippets um i was amazed when i was writing my book i found an account about um uh, one fifth Welsh regiment gets loses a company, a company at Le Bon Repos in Normandy, uh, and they're on a they're on a forward slope facing the enemy, and they hold out against uh, a full German regimental attack for uh, the best part. I think it's about twelve hours, um, and during it, it takes the final. I've got I, I dug up amazingly enough. A family did an interview on BBC uh, Northern Ireland. And I managed to uh, tell them what the last known words were from this woman's father because they were recorded by another Welsh battalion a mile over who was eavesdropping in the engagement. And it took the SS Pantagrandadir about two hours to close the final 20 yards. Wow. And that's 20 yards that's between. There are, yeah. And it, and it gives you an idea. And that's, that's, that's part of the problem of a lot of this stuff. Um, and then also because, again, tanks are really cool. So we won't look at the... So one of the crazy things I think about Churchills is they're usually backed by M10s. But yeah. you won't read about it because no one knows about it because it doesn't fit our conf- slightly confused view. And also every British unit in Normandy does everything different anyway. There's no sort of centralised way to operating, which is a bit... It's interesting, but a bit derp, you know. Uh, We're going to take a short break now. We'll see you in a second. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Uh, James and I are talking to Jonathan Ware. This one could go on forever. Jonathan, I've got a question for you. I've got a question for you. So so, um, you... I'm, I'm doing this work on the Sherwood Rangers Yeomanry, and it's really interesting when you look at their diaries, when you look at accounts, they talk an awful lot about the Essex Yeomanry, who are their kind of um, um, SP supports, you know, their, their tracked sextons and what have you. Um, they talk a lot about artillery further back. They obviously talk a lot about the infantry they're working with. There's a huge amount of that. There is literally... They they also do talk with 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 hushed tones of complete awe about typhoons coming in. Um, they never, ever, ever mention the um, anti-tank batteries that are accompanying them on these operations. That can't be just because they don't care about them. It must be because they're just not really interacting with them. They're not really seeing them. They, they don't have a kind of, you know, they're not having O groups with them. They're not having conferences with them. So so how does, how do, how, how is an, you're saying that people are, you know, every division is different, but to say you're the 30, 43rd Wessex division, you've got eight farmer brigades supporting you. You've got Essex Yeomanry as well. You've got um, divisional artillery. 
you also got a unit such as the 236th anti-tank batteries um, supporting you. How are those Wolverines, those M10s, how are they actually being incorporated into the battle space? Okay, so the first thing is, uh, I suspect that 8th Armoured Brigade won't feature much with the M10s because the M10s seem to be used a lot more to back up my beloved Churchill tank. So your Churchill tank troop has uh, three tanks in it usually, one with a six-pounder for anti-tank work. So the, set, the attachment of M10s gives them a lot more ranged killing, although most of the armoured engagements in Normandy are about 1,000 yards or so. It's a bit of a factoid, but it's, it's not too far off. So it's, all, it's a bit like knife fighting, to be honest, the whole time. And if you look at some really good armoured engagements, uh, well, again, uh, during, um, uh, during uh, Green Line, there's an amazing one where Norris King ends up overseeing 153 Royal Armoured Corps in a, a close engagement against Stugs and Panthers, where, they, where on paper the Churchill's crap. Um, so there's different ways that they'll do it. So every British division in Normandy does things differently, and the amount of time it takes to transfer ideas is pretty sluggish at times. So um, the use of like uh, uh, Hawkins mines to blow in slit trenches and stuff uh the welsh division allegedly comes up with it i think it's like in um april 44 maybe a bit before then but it doesn't despite they fight next to the canadians for an extended period in july and august it doesn't transfer over then to the canadian corps for another something like four weeks five weeks or something crazy it's a long very these are slow processes even if they're under the same command which i think is quite interesting um so when you're using your armour, the first thing you've got to think is your towed 17-pounders take forever to get into battle. And people will say I'm wrong on this, but they, they really are sluggish. So it, it during the Battle for Valets, the Welsh division keeps trying to get their 17-pounders up, and they're sometimes about 12 hours behind because you've got and a three-ton gun is it, is, being towed is that... by a quad. It, it, roadblocks, just the, the nature of congested battlefields. Um, so... A lot of a lot of, you can't employ a lot of the material assets you want to because they're on they're on they're on you know rubber tires they're not on tracks and so therefore you can't you've got to go down the road you can't just sort of blast your way through a hedge yeah. or go across you the can field. Get, you can take them across country they're just not they're, and also they're vulnerable to incoming fire uh, it takes a lot of time for them to get anywhere and there's not many roads that's the other thing Normandy's like an absolute hell water to drive around even now and that's after seventy years of uh, infrastructure improvements. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I mean, I've got, I've got, so I've got this book here, which is um, <laughs> the developments of artillery tactics and equipment, and it talks about the seventeen pounder, and it says, you know, the seventeen pounder was a great gun, but the problem was it just took forever to get get into position. And and I remember thinking, you know, we, we've got a friend who, um, who who's got one, and he's got all the quad and all the rest of it, and you know, frankly, from you know, we we drove it into a field. We unhitched it, got it out, put a put a um a you know a blank shell in the in the breach, and it took about thirty seconds. I mean, it really didn't take very long at yeah. all. And I've never really understood understood this discrepancy. But but what you're saying is is it's not the issue of unshackling it and putting it into a position that's the issue. It's just actually getting it to the position in the first place that takes time. Yeah, and and also when you get it in position, I think. Um... Uh, again, during Green Line, uh, the Scots get four of their 17-pounders forward with quads and they deploy them. But the problem is because it's taken so long for them to get forward, because to get an anti-tank gun in position through enemy territory, assuming there's feared mines, you've got to f clear the minefield to start. You've got to mark it out so you send infantry forward or engineers to mark it out. That takes an amount of time. Then you send crabs to go over it, staggered, and uh, blow it out. I don't have a model crab to hand, I 
should yeah. do. Um, but yeah, if you on. lose we, a crab, yeah. then you've blocked that tank track, so you can't open it up. Okay, so the tank track's closed for a few hours. You recover the vehicle carefully. Hopefully don't blow up the recovery vehicle on the way out. Um, and once you've got that out, then in theory you've got a tank track through that can be used by vehicles. But the enemy have probably heard what's going on and is directing fire at you now. So all these complications and tiny little details slow every point of that down. Um, and it just sucks speed. I, I, I think they were surprised as well how slow it takes to get in action. And when the Scots do get these uh, Trooper 17-pounders in action, they lose three of them in about, uh, I think it's five minutes to a, a Tiger tank on Hill 112. So unless they're dug in, and digging in takes up to 12 hours because they're bloody yeah. huge they're things, big. unless they're you big. use the Hawkins yeah, yeah, yeah. mines. But, um, and they were using bulldozers at times. So when we develop, I mean... If you're dealing with fixed defences, it's great. In Normandy, they do trial the uh, Valentine 17-pounder that I will keep saying, despite it's such a mouthful. mouthful. Um, when they try those, uh, I think that is with 43rd Wessex to get those on a, a test piece. They initially hated them. Uh, they thought they were too slow, horrible vehicles, which would attract fire. But because it was a self-propelled, fully-tracked anti-tank gun, although they the accounts of them do say they didn't fire a single shot in Normandy because they're there for trials more than anything else. Um, they prove their usefulness because they could, you know, get into position and far quicker. Um, a Lloyd, Lloyd anti-tank guns as well, there's one action uh, towards, again, when they're cutting towards valets, where they run into Tiger tanks, but the Lloyd uh, anti-tank gun platoon has taken a, a wrong turning because the lieutenant got confused. He gets shot up and taken prisoner, I believe, and it leaves the anti-tank guns out of the battle for X amount of time. And also, all these units run on radios, and the one assumption you're making the whole way through, and everyone does, is the radios fucking work, because a lot of the time they don't. Um, the yeah. standard 18 set is great, and but it gets swamped by tanks. And we did issue um, uh, WS-38 sets inside a lot of our tanks to work with infantry support. But a lot of the time, those tank, those same sets were getting drowned out by the tank themselves. So the infantrymen yeah. standing nearby wouldn't be able to talk. And there's a weird line that they thought Churchill's were more of a problem for that. Uh, I think that's just slander. Uh, that probably is a point <laughs> there, but, uh, than Sherman. But yeah, so you've got all these, so many of these tiny little difficulties just filter up. Um, well, well, the, 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 your own in, the, your own internal friction long before the enemy even uh, uh, get involved. Yeah, even. that's right. I mean, the, the frictions within your own system before the friction of war itself. I mean, it... it it is interesting though, because because so so the six pounder is doing a lot more work than maybe it gets the um, you know because the, the seventeen pounder is sort of this glamour solution weapon, isn't it? Uh, in lots of accounts, it, it finally they've come up. Finally, the British have an anti tank weapon that can deal with the heavy armour. In fact, the six pounder is capable of this. It's far more man portable. You can put it on a carrier. It's firing a sabo round. The encounters are all at quite quite close range anyway. Um, is the 17-pounder a red herring then? Yeah, sort of. I mean, you can, you can. one thing you can do with 17-pounders is just usually throw them on the back of a tank and race them up. But yeah. you're probably not going to take all the ammunition you want with you and all this sort of yeah. stuff. And when you get there, it's going to arrive somewhere fairly hot anyway. Um, for me, I think the 6-pounder is a saviour. I've got accounts of 6-pounders killing about four tanks. Uh, Railray is a brilliant example where 6-pounder helps carrier because they keep redeploying them they also deploy lots of smashed six pounders and 17 pounders they move them overnight so when the german attack comes in they don't know uh, they're going to be seeing anti-tank guns which are already dead and direct 
they're far at them. Uh, but six pounder gets into action. Piat as well. I mean, Piat's a really good weapon system. Um, a lot of the German units as well oh, are. You're, you're making you're making so, you're making Al very happy, Jonathan. Yeah, well, yeah so <laughs> the, there's some weird there's some weird stuff with Panzerfaust and Panzerschreck, and I've got an account from a German soldier. And when they first had Panzerschreck issued, they um, no, it's Panzerfaust. They're all shown this weapon, disposable weapon. And in Normandy, we're not talking the Panzerfaust like 120s or 80s. I think in Normandy, the most common one is the Panzerfaust 30. Uh, because the other ones haven't quite come into service. A lot of them come in September. So these are short-range Panzerfausts. And the Panzer Shrek units, which are often being used to bulk out um, infantry division anti-tank companies and stuff, they, they can have as few as eight rounds a time for an engagement. So they have to be quite yeah. creative with minimal uh, resources. Um, but the Panzerfaust, the first time it was used, by, I think, by 277th Infantry to demonstrate, the uh, the NCO held it, fired it, but he missed he, Bucked it up and blew his own leg off and killed himself. So all the all the uh, lander watching that had just were horrified and didn't want to touch one of them. It was user error through and through. Um, but yeah, and a, the Panzer Shrek is, time, is reusable, isn't it? I mean, Panzer Shrek is reusable. Panzer Shrek is Panzer Shrek. It's a bazooka. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So um, <clears throat> and those tend to crop up when they're lacking pack forties because uh, they've got real. Uh, they've got huge supply problems, uh, um, and they tr- they're, 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 that's a that's a conversation for another day. Um, but what I think is fascinating is six pounder crops up a lot, and there's also the use of like seventy five uh, millimeter guns to just shit up the enemy. Um, I've yeah. got accounts as well of um, there's a there's a great account. So we used Oster AOPs to linger over the battlefield, and they would sort of like you would use a drone now, you know, just just see what the enemy was doing, report it back to artillery. Yeah. And uh, I think it was about the 23rd, 24th of July. One of them was rolling over Hill 112, and we've got the pilot's account and everything, and a, he saw a tiger tank, and the tiger tank raises its gun and shoots at the Oster. So he misses, <laughs> the tiger misses, obviously. because And also, everyone thinks the Osters are flying way faster than they are. They're pooping about 100 miles an hour. So when they get attacked by Focke Wolf 190s, as occasionally happens, they can outturn in these crazy dogfights. Um, so what the Oster pilot does is go, "You bastard! I wasn't gonna bother with you today, but you've you've upset me now. You've you absolutely upset me." So then they direct a core level stonks of five five and twenty five pounder, and they chase this cat all around Hill One One Two to scuttle back to its lines. Um, but when you look at the oh, German brilliant. damage records as well, we know that they're suffering loads of damage because. Their, their heavy tanks can take a hit from a 25 pounder round, yeah, sure, no problem. But it's the crude damage to engine systems, coolants, fuel lines and stuff, and just you're getting whacked about. It means they're losing serviceability because they're being hunted, basically. I mean, I mean Jonathan, yeah. it's really interesting because all the account, a lot of accounts of, of from the, the Sherwood Ranger stuff is, is, you know, they come up against tanks and quite often German crews are just bailing out because what, what, they, what the Sherwood Rangers seem to work out, and I know they're not alone in this, is that as soon you know the, because the Sherman can can fire really quickly? What they do is they just they just pummel the whatever tank it is, whether it's a four, a Stoker, Panther, or a Tiger, it doesn't really matter. They just go boom, 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 boom at, at it. Tiger or Panther or whatever's being attacked hatches down immediately, covered in smoke, desperately trying to manoeuvre. They've got some young recruit who's not very experienced who sort of grinds it at the gearbox, can't get it into reverse quickly enough. Meanwhile, yet more rounds are kind of being fired into it. Suddenly, a track goes, or, or some damage, or or, or the um, uh, periscopes are hit, or whatever, and suddenly the crew are all bailing out. You know, there's nothing wrong with the tiger per se. It's just that that the the 
Tiger Commander, Tank Commander, no longer feels it's safe to remain inside it. So they all bail out. Uh, I mean, you know, George Dring gets his, his five tanks on the 26th of June, mm. all with a 75-pounder Sherman. Uh, and I don't think he destroys a single tank. He knocks them out, but that's not the same thing at all. No, yeah. Um, uh, to be honest, everyone does that. So it's, it's a bit like whack-a-mole. Um, when you look at actions from all sides and it's why also I suspect that lots of our tank crew stats are becoming mortar casualties because the Germans are constantly hitting them with mortar bombs and stuff Yeah. so you jump in and out of your vehicle as and when you lose faith in it it's it's that sort of um, and the weird thing is there's I don't understand it. I see loads of captions attached to images being like, this tank was shot repeatedly by the same anti-tank gun. They, you know, this Sherman's been killed 50 times. It's not like playing War Thunder or World of Tanks because you don't get a kill notification, do you? No. Um, you've got to go off through what you can see. So pretty much, and that's also why I think so many tanks brew up because the the way to tell you've killed a tank is to make sure it burns and the first tiger killed by the Welsh division is killed by a six pounder so the crew cheer they see the Germans bail and then after about an hour it fires and blows the six pounder up and kills the crew and the Welsh are furious they eventually send some pioneers out the pioneer platoon go out with demo charges and blow the shit out of the tiger well the tiger um (laughs) and but what we learn, what they learn from that is shoot until the bastard burns. And you see that later on because it's the only way you can tell you've got a definite kill. Yep. You know, there's no refuting that. But the, the joke is, so um, this is a few years ago, I was trying to work out why the destruction rate of German tanks going to Normandy, like if you take, if you take the tactical air stuff, for granted, they're destroying armies worth of tanks. So there can't be any German tanks in Normandy because they're just burning on the way. But 102 SS, uh, uh, 102 Shreya SS Panzer, they had uh, smoke generators on their engine decks. So you press a button, and also most British tanks have this as well. Uh, Churchill has it and quite a lot, and I think Farfly and things, the number seven smoke generators, if I may be wrong on that. But they have uh, engine-mounted smoke generators, so you can use them for cover. You can also feign being blown up. So quite a lot of tanks being blown up by tanks or air power are just hitting the smoke generator, feigning it, and trying to stop the enemy shooting at them so they can redeploy. I, I, or just I mean, distract them. So. Just to, I mean, the way you put it earlier on, lose faith in your vehicle, in your in your tank, is a, I think a very interesting uh, 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 way of putting it. Because after all, we're told that one of, again one of the received accounts is that the, the, the British and uh, and and American tankers to a lesser extent, I think, don't have faith in their tanks. And, you know, it's the old story of questions in Parliament about about tanks during the the, the Normandy campaign. This is a received thing. Tommy Cookers, Ronsons and so on. Where, first of all, uh, because I know, I I mean, I I, I do know that Tommy Cooker is a a term that sort of came through the account, uh, uh, the accounts being distorted by historiography rather than necessarily being common parlance. And Ronson, certainly, it's quite hard to pin down when that comes into common parlance, is, is it even contemporary with Normandy? We don't, you know, I, there's some argument about it, isn't there? But to what extent is there a, a, a problem of faith in, in armoured fighting vehicles in Normandy on the part of the uh, British? OK, there's, there's two... Actually, there's, you take me to, I'll answer that in a second, because the first part I'll forget. The... Uh, I think it was, it's Bill Williams or oh, it's Ricky Richards, that's it. Yeah. He was Major General Royal Armoured Corps uh, for uh, 21st Army Group. Yeah. And when the questions are raised in Parliament, he's the one who gives Monty his answer and Monty just 
sends what Richard says. He doesn't edit it at all. So really the person you're listening to answering these inquiries from MPs is actually Ricky Richards. And he right. often says that there were problems with the data being sent to Parliament was not what he was seeing. They was getting exaggerated or misinterpreted yeah. uh, from confused reports. And that's that's one thing I think is interesting. Uh, one of the one of the funniest things I found. So there's this whole. Have you heard the catch the tiger? How do you catch that tiger joke? No, go on. So in Normandy, ca- there was a story. Oh. Yeah. So and it, and it's basically that you have to. There's a story going. How uh, has anyone has anyone killed a panther? Yes, you know, private so and so has done. Oh, how did he do it? Oh, to catch a panther, he snuck up to within ten yards. He managed to shoot the ground or bounce a shot off the mantlet bounced down or bounced up, blew the tank apart. You've got to be foxy like your fox hunting. It's really dangerous. And he's back 10 miles recovering his nerve. Absolutely shot. Sergeant Reynolds, absolutely shot. Oh, has anyone killed a tiger? No. Now, that's reported as a conversation repeatedly. Okay, everyone reports that in loads of history books as a uh, conversation. But there were four accounts and it was an account. It was a joke going around uh, Churchill units in Normandy. It was just a joke. Um, you... <laughs> Whether they were nervous is another matter. I think um, uh, John Gorman, I know I got upset by YouTubers recently, but this does happen. John Gorman made uh, the comment that if they encountered a king tiger, he would ram it. But when you read the account of him and the driver, uh, the driver is Askew or Asnew or something. The driver said to him, so, John, what do we do if we encounter a tiger? And John's like, oh, we treat it naval style. We ram it. And it was a joke. They didn't mean to do that. It was just a, literally, oh, fuck. If we encounter a 60-ton king tiger, we'll have to ram it because we've That's got a tiny option. gun. Yeah. Yeah. And so there's definitely uh, quite a lot of um, quite a lot of humour about it. Um, later on in the campaign, I think the other problem is a lot of our losses early on are exacerbated by being too dense. So they always say the Brits don't focus armoured units to maximise punch. Uh, but we actually do early on, and we just suffer far more casualties for it. It's the, like the joke about good tank country not being good tank country. Um, mm. In one-for-one Royal Armoured Corps, weirdly enough, actually, no, it's not one-for-one, it's a 34 Tank Brigade, the, there's a case of a Churchill 7 where the front glacis is hit by an anti-tank gun and splits, drops onto the driver's legs and makes an absolute mess. It kills the co-driver and uh, it disables, uh, permanently disables the driver. Uh, and that's reported quite a lot. But when I managed to find the original destruction reports, it turned out it was a German shell of at least 150 millimetres. So it was a you know heavy artillery shell, which smashed the uh, Churchill 7. The weld seams on that tank were too weak. And the problem there was it was just one of uh, circumstances as much as anything else, because the tank would have been able to take uh, would have been able to take that sort of impact, but didn't in reality. But that then got reported as being a common occurrence to Churchill Sevens. Yeah. I think there's one incidence of it. So when you also stack in, we're dealing with a small number of accounts. I mean, most armoured units may leave six to eight accounts. The the odd can just become the norm. Um, yeah. Or be be misconstrued by historians. It's, it's just the math. Again, for me, it all comes down to the maths of what we're dealing with. We're often using less than 1% and sometimes as low as 0.04% was the worst I came to of accounts to justify huge statements on weapons effectiveness. Um, I think mm. there's, 
James, you may have noticed this. I think there's like 14 accounts of Firefly or something. Something really low like that. Yeah, that it's, it's, there's, there's, wow. there's not a lot. I mean, there is, at Bovington, there's a huge amount of analysis on the, 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 um, the armoured fighting vehicle, um, 21st Army Group, combat reports and all this sort of stuff. There's loads and loads of stuff on that. And it is it is all really interesting. I mean, what is also really interesting, though, is there's, there's a lot of criticism about German tanks as well. I mean, they you know, they're not just analysing their own tanks. They're, you know, and, and there's... There's clearly there's absolutely no point about putting a, a kind of political spin on things. You know, they they need in these reports, they're trying to kind of get to the bottom of, you know, what's working, what isn't, what do people think? You know, there's lots of conversations with people, there's lots of reports from, from Americans as well and Canadians and so on and so forth. I mean, it is, you know, you do get a very, very clear picture. There's also a lot of analysis on, on tank casualties, a huge amount of analysis on tank casualties. Um uh, And I think the main report they do is based on something like 583 tank casualties and they're at absolute pains to say this is this is not uh, this is only 583 tanks it's not 4,500 you know it, it but actually 583 tanks let's say it is that figure gives you a pretty good appreciation and, and as you pointed out earlier on Jonathan I mean they conclude that I think it's uh, only 25% of people are actually killed inside their tank you know, 75% are killed, something like that. It's, it's that kind of, that area. The interesting thing about looking at the show at Rangers, though, is that no one complains about the, there's quite a lot of complaints about the Firefly, and the the, the complaints about the Firefly gets less and less as the, as the that all backdates to Normandy and not to kind of later on campaigns. And that's because, of course, they're starting to work out how to use it and everything. But the main complaint about the Sherman, uh, and there's lots of praise for its manoeuvrability, its quick firing, all that kind of stuff. The main thing is 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 its profile. They said so the big problem is is we had a much higher profile than other tanks, and and, and it doesn't. Uh, it has a much higher profile than a Stug. It has a, I think it's ten inches higher than a than a Churchill or a Cromwell. So if you're coming off the beach and you're looking at your Churchills and Cromwells, you would definitely be higher than them. But it's I think it's two inches taller than a than a Mark IV, and it's ten inches shorter than a Tiger or a Panther. So it's a complete. You know that that is just simply not not the case. But it is interesting that perception obviously does count, and and what you can say about the Sherman, it's got a very defined profile, but it's not necessarily a higher profile. But that seems to me, from what I've read, one of the biggest complaints. Um, and you know, it's it it's it isn't doing what it was supposed to do. I mean, it you know they were expecting it to be Churchill's going off with the infantry rather than Germans. But I think they probably they probably did quite well sticking with the German, to be honest. I mean, the manoeuvrability, the quick firing rate of it, the fact that you can pummel enemy positions, the fact that you can sort of you know manoeuvre very very simply, the fact that it's got this incredibly robust uh, um, transmission, you know, that can take a huge amount of punishment without. I mean, the the biggest biggest issue is is not stopping on the battlefield, isn't it? That's what you don't want to be doing. You you, you want to be able to be able to manoeuvre whenever you want to manoeuvre. It's getting stuck, and that and it's getting stuck. Not being able to move, that is what is prompting people to bail out on both sides, isn't it? Actually, there's several things there. The first is Firefly's unpopular in Normandy because you can't hit anything because you've got the wrong fucking gun sight. Um, that's the first. <laughs> yeah. I still find that hilarious. There's the, the with, when you look at like it's a bit like tank row oversuits are a great thing. Uh, everyone believes tank row oversuits were really common in Normandy, and I've managed to backdate it to an IWM caption on the one they've got that insinuates that everyone had them. 
Uh, they didn't. If you check the issue of them, I think First Polish Armored Division were the first to go in them with loads of them into theatre. And we have loads of trials of like ground trailing. There's so much kit being tried in Normandy. We There's also weird sniper rifles a mate of mine uh, told me about a while ago. Um, there's all these sort of trials and explorations of stuff. But I think it's not till September that Firefly starts getting half-decent sights. Uh, it's why Joe Ekins must have been very good at trigonometry. Right. Yeah. And they didn't have long to familiarise themselves with it. It's like, uh, I think the rain shoots for Firefly happened in April or May, and the unit sent cadres over to Kirk Ubright to ranges to go get rounds down range. So they had a very small amount of time to familiarise themselves with those vehicles, and the flight of Sabot is different. And Sabot yeah. and Normandy's are completely derp topic anyway because you often enough require corps or army approval to request the rounds and sort of a similar problem to fire them because there's so few available they're trying to really uh, save them up for what matters when it comes to cross-country movement um one thing which is a, i think a problem with modern vehicle owners uh because we they, uh, we've lost a lot of what they taught the um original uh, instructors so if you were i found that there's files at q massive i mean they're massive and they're how you drive tanks cross country and i, I flicked through them and the, the spoiler is every tank moves cross country at 10 or 12 miles an hour apart from <laughs> maybe uh cromwell and panther so that tank combat in normandy is really slow it's why it doesn't matter if your tank can go 100 miles an hour you're not going to be able to use it because you're all stuck to these basic limitations um and it's one of the one of the most interesting things that a lot of drivers would be told this extensively during basic training because it's the stuff your instructor would know because all those trials when they've done the tests they'll give them verbally to the instructor who studied learned them from other crew and all this stuff you'll know them as a vehicle driver but when you're in action well when nowadays we look at it we forget all this stuff you just go off the stats as presented in like Ian Hogg or something because we've lost that context and when you realize that like for me armored vehicle combat it's just like frankly i'm bringing my friend back it's just he's lost his barrel but it's a shuffling game it's constant reposition movement obviously is key and they're just redeploying here and there and it's i mean when you look how slow some armored vehicle combat is in normandy it can take six to eight hours to make very small gains uh, because the enemy often closing with you. And all the other point that does take me to is a lot of the time the British tankies do very much seem up for fights. Um, and the the Germans had a problem, which was during Epsom, when they counterattack then, the uh, 9th and 10th SS don't take about two weeks to change their armoured tactics because they've arrived from the east. There's a slow process of learning then. Um and that exacerbates their losses, certainly, because they're not used to dealing in the close confines of Normandy. But the, their crews remain very much up for scraps. But there is also a point when they get told, oh, be cautious of British tanks in, uh, in mid-July. Be cautious of them because the, the, crew, the uh, tank crew quality is better than we expected. So more caution does build into both sides. I just think naturally because people see what happens to these vehicles. When people look inside burnt-out tanks, they don't do it again. They look once and then they tell everyone else not to because it's so distressing. Yeah. So um, there is that sort of maturing learning aspect going on. I'm rather horrified Gosh, to see that we've already been talking for an hour. It feels like about there's 15 so minutes. much to talk. There's so much to talk Jonathan, about. Jonathan, we, we're, we're going to have to try and twist your arm and persuade you to come on again because yeah. well, I haven't even talked to you about Tosca Watkins yet. Oh, that's, yeah, that, that's that's the, that's where the memorial moved a mile because I politely asked them to. Um, so yeah, that's that's a, that's a really. Good <laughs> I wrote a chapter about him once for a book about VCs. So 
Uh, and the crazy thing fan, is, it's not, it's not the story you'd expect. That's the crazy no, no, thing no. with Tasker Watkins. It's not the story you'd expect. Yeah. Anyway, we must leave that for another anyway, time. But, well, um, well, thank you so much, Jonathan. Uh, I mean, you know... Awesome, the, the, thanks, Gaps. I mean, we've, it's not that we've opened a, a can of worms. It's that we've just pierced the lid... <laughs> and I can smell. I can smell the Little worm. Wafts, the wafts is, is of, it, of oil and wafts rubber. Of, wafts of worm is how it feels. <laughs> thank you so much for joining us, and uh, I'm sure we'll speak to you again soon. Um, uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, thanks for listening. Thanks to Jonathan Ware for joining us. We'll see you again soon. Cheerio. Cheerio.